but we are so grateful for what God is doing. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this time together. I pray that you would continue to open our hearts, especially as we move into this season of Lent, which is, is not some kind of, we're not, we don't do this in order to get you to like us, approve us, or in any way um, find that somehow our works can um, alone bring about your love and acceptance. We do it in response to saying, God, how can we in our hearts see those things that are either keeping us from um, knowing you more, keeping us from living with you more, and keep us from allowing you to live through us to others more. And so we do reflect, we do stop. We recognize we are dust. And yet, for anyone who is open to it to receive you, we are filled um, with your spirit. And though we are dust, we are higher in that way than the angels you've told us. And we give you thanks in Christ's name. Amen. Well, I was on a plane last week, and it's the only time I get to see movies, so I decided to watch the movie Harriet. I was very interested in watching that because I had read her biography and some other works of Harriet Tubman and was very interested in the time a few years back when I was really just trying to immerse myself into, because it's really hard, um, and we'll never do it as a, let's just say as a white person, but to try and understand what someone else goes through in their race and what is it like if you've been under oppression. And I really was in a process of just trying to say, God, at least open my heart and, and develop compassion. So I have no idea what it means, as my, one of my friends shared with me, that he gives a lesson to his kids in the morning uh, when they're younger about um, when they go out, how they need to um, be careful because of things like, and, and we praise God for police, but the fact that sometimes he just has to train them differently than we do our own. And, um, and I was just trying to process through all the things in all the years, and so I was trying to process. So I read to Harriet Tubman, and Harriet Tubman was an abolitionist, and, and Tubman was born into slavery in Dorchester County, Maryland, somewhere between, they don't know when, 1820 to 1825, somewhere in that area. She escaped from slavery in 1849, and then subsequently, she made 13 rescue missions using a network of safe houses and an, an underground railroad. And her code name was Moses. She was illiterate her entire life, but yet without education and the ability to read, she rescued approximately 70 enslaved people, including family and friends. But here's the remarkable thing. She didn't lose one of the slaves that she rescued. It's just incredible. Her biography would tell how she would, while she'd be leading people, uh, she would get a vision or uh, it talked even more about the fact that she would give, see this prompting and, and, and she was praying, she would, and God would direct her a different way. Well, in the movie, they show it in a different way. They kind of show her coming almost like a, under a narcoleptic kind of trance, you know, fall asleep and she would just all of a sudden like be in the ground. She'd have this vision and as she has this vision, she'd come out of it <clears throat> and she'd kind of awaken and, and, and she would start to process and be praying to the Lord. Well, that happened at one point when she was taking some slaves and and some of her um, people that she had known, and she was rescuing them. And there in a tree was watching a person who was another black person who was a trader who, who was working with the slave owners and had it set up that these 
these slaves that would be coming through, he was going to report to them when they're coming, which he did, and they were waiting, the slave owners, at the bridge, the only place you could really cross. And then she had this vision and he's watching her from this tree. This guy who is traded, is, is betrayed them to the slave owners is about to see them get trapped across the bridge. She begins to have this vision and she sees and God kind of directs her another way and she takes him. And even the people in her party are resisting. And one is really kind of saying, you're crazy. I'm not going to go with you. And she basically corralled them all and she prayed and she went across the place in the river. She did, they, none of them can swim. And she walked across and they, it was like Moses going across the river kind of idea. And a guy in the tree who was a traitor saw what happened, saw her praying to God. And he didn't just see a woman. He saw God. He saw God at work. It was what I would call one of those this is God moments. Have you ever had a this is God moment? One of those times where you see and you go, wow, this is more than a circumstance. This is more than a bit of luck. This is more than, than some interesting way that things came together. This is God. Well, as we look at this story this morning, as we look at this plague, which is called the plague of gnats, the key statement that you have to understand that begins in the very first plague, back in chapter 7, verse 17, is that these are done so that all people would know that the Lord is God. Here's, here's the words. This is what the Lord says. By this you will know that I am the Lord. This is Moses. With the staff that is in my hand, I will strike the water of the Nile, and it will be changed to blood. So that each one of these plagues, or better, I would say, strikes or blows that, that come against Egypt and, and Pharaoh, and as Israel is watching, and as Israel years later watches and looks back, and as we here today look at it, it is all for this purpose. It's, he says, stretch out your hand over the streams, over the canals and ponds so the frogs come out of Egypt. Stretch out your hand and strike the dust of the ground. Because this is what the Lord says. By this, you will know that I am the Lord. So each plague or strike is a blow to get Pharaoh's attention and our attention. And like the young man watching Harriet Tubman led by God, which got his attention so that he might know that Harriet Tubman's God is really the same God that created and loved him. God is willing to step into our life to give us these God moments. Sometimes it comes with pain. Sometimes it comes and you look at it and you go, wow. Through the gracious act of God, his goodness, you experience him. So let's stand together. We're going to read this, uh, this account, verses 16 through 19. Then the Lord said to Moses, tell Aaron, stretch out your staff and strike the dust of the ground and throughout the land of Egypt, the dust will become gnats. And they did this. And when Aaron stretched out his hand with the staff and struck the dust of the ground, gnats came on the people and animals and all the dust throughout the land of Egypt became gnats. But when the magicians tried to produce the gnats by their secret arts, they could not. And since gnats were on people and animals everywhere, the magicians said to Pharaoh, they're making their appeal, this is the finger of God. But Pharaoh's heart was hard and he would not listen, just as the Lord said. Thank you. You may be seated.
So I'm going to give you a little general info. So if you haven't been here, just to understand about the plagues, which are literally blows, the best way I can explain it is they're almost like economic sanctions. You know, you know, when we, we, we say to a country because of their ruthless leader or their group of leaders or this country and, and, and you want to get their attention so you put sanctions against them that make life really difficult. And then you might have to create some more to make it even more difficult. Because you're calling them to attention and saying rethink, which is this whole Exodus series as we go into Lent is about, is rethink, repent, think again differently about what you're doing. And so as he is doing this through these what I call economic sanctions, he begins by one plague and another plague. There's three sets of three plagues, and we don't have time for us to teach us. I'd go through how all these things map out. They're, they're, it's really interesting. It ends with a tenth plague that finally, due to the loss of his firstborn, gets Pharaoh's attention. And each blow is a blow to an Egyptian god with the hope that they will lose faith in that God. Sometimes happens when you have a job and all of a sudden you lose that job and you realize you had so much of your life, you could get it. That job almost became a God to you. Or maybe it's your health or your, your sense of control. And, you, and, and, and it says that God is being mean, but when that happens, you begin to realize, boy, I can only get my life out of what is the only thing that can give me life. My security can only come from the one who can really give me security. It's God. And so he's going through these. This one is the, um, that he comes against is this beetle called Kefrer. And, and it was this, they, you know, like they had frogs they, they saw and respected in the Nile because they each represented the way this God gave them something. This God was the God of the resurrection, came out of the soil, and out of the soil it would birth like June beetles around the time when the growing season starts. These June beetles that we have that come out, they were kind of like somehow a seed goes in and it comes out and out of it comes a new kind of life. And God's going to show them that this God doesn't have the kind of power they think this God has. And so you have these three plagues of three, ending with the tenth, Now, let's just talk a little bit about this one we read today. The first plague, this one, is the first one that comes without any warning. Every other one before that, and even some to come, come with warnings. You'll see in these three sets of three, there's ones that come without warning. And if you note how the the plague of the frog ends, Pharaoh pleads to Moses that he would pray to his God. And that God would take away the frogs. And he then said, I will let your people go and worship. And then as Bruce said last week, and I got to share with you, I was so grateful. Um, Bruce and George and Becca, when we have people preach, I'm so grateful for our staff. They do such a great job. I was going, man, I hope I can do that today. Anyway, as Bruce said last week, this was ingenious when, when he te- Moses tells Pharaoh to set the time when the frog should leave. It's like when a magician says, you know, you pick the card. You, you grab the number because, it, you know, it, you're putting power into their hands a little bit where they, they go, well, this is, you know, this is, this is tough if he can do this. I mean, otherwise it could be rigged. And so he does that. Moses prays, frogs leave, the frogs leave. Now Exodus chapter 8, verses 15 through 16. But when Pharaoh saw that there was relief, 
He hardened his heart, and then the Lord said to Moses, Tell Aaron, stretch out your staff and strike the dust of the ground, and throughout the land of Egypt the dust will become gnats. And now there's no warning. Because Pharaoh reneged on his promise. There was no need for warning in this one. He said he's going to do that, and he didn't. And the consequences of this was the next plague. These plagues strike the entire ecosystem. What's really interesting is you come from the frogs, the gnats, the flies. You'll see that each of them are striking. One is the water the frogs come from, the land, the, the dust, the gnats come from, and then the air, you have the flies that come from the sky. And, and the whole point of this that, that he's making here is, look at you guys, you are not dealing with just any God, you are dealing with the God of all creation. So that's how those three kind of line up. And then you ask yourself, what kind of insects really are they? Are they gnats? Because if you read through different translations, some will say gnats, some will say sandflies, some will say um, uh, they're um, lice. Some scholars wonder just different things. Um, but the word katim is only used here and then a couple other places in reference to this place. So we don't really know fully <clears throat> what those insects are. But what we do know is that with each of these plagues, they grow in intensity. The irritant becomes greater. The first one is merely a, you know, kind of an inconvenience. The water's filled with this color of blood and allergy, and, and so they have to dig to get their water. It's an inconvenience. The second is the frogs coming out of the land. That's a nuisance. They're everywhere. You open the drawer, there they are. You go to the closet, there they are. You go into the food shelf, there they are. You step on them, there they are. They're just a nuisance. Now what I think is interesting is the third most likely could have been, and many scholars will say, they may have been mosquitoes. Anybody in Minnesota familiar with mosquitoes? What I want you to do is try and imagine not only how inconvenient that would be and what a nuisance one little mosquito would be, but just imagine what a black cloud of mosquitoes would be. Okay, that's enough. I, I, when I found that on YouTube and I played that, I went, oh man, it just gives me the shivers. You ever been in a tent? And you just hear one of those things flying around? Now if you have a cloud full of them, and they're biting you, this is getting really personal. God continues to increase the strikes, the blows, the sanctions. Exodus 8, verse 17. When Aaron stretched out his hand with the staff and struck the dust to the ground, gnats came on the people and the animals, and all the dust throughout the land became gnats or mosquitoes or whatever. And all the dust, he says, became this. Now, that's not every piece of sand. A little bit later, you say all the livestock. Um, one of the commentators, as I was reading this, said, let's not be overly literal. Carping and pettifogging. Well, heaven forbid we'd be pettifogging. <laughs> I had no idea what he's talking about. And I bet you most of you don't. How many know what pettifogging is? Come on, some of you do. It's to be petty. He basically says, listen, folks. It's part of a feature of storytelling. 
It's like in, in Mark when it says the whole town of Capernaum was at the door of Peter's mother-in-law. The, the idea is it's pervasive, it's huge, it's all over, it affects everyone in every way. It's just that feature that you find so often when you tell a story. And the idea is that this is a little bit more than this is not just natural. God was in it if you had the eyes to see it. This was super, where we get the word natural. Supra, above, that, which is just natural. And you go, well, wait a second, there are natural things. As Bruce led last week, that these were the cycle of the natural occurrence of biblical of what are called biblical proportions. Here's the cycle. The Nile had a high flood and then ran high with extra sediment from further up river in Africa. The idea is that exceptionally high flood levels brought increased sediment into the Nile, discoloring the river. There was then an outbreak of bacterial poisoning in the river, which killed off the fish, and this further polluted the water, forcing frogs to invade the dry land, and when they dried off their lack of food, their carcasses provided an ideal breeding ground for mosquitoes and flies, which rapidly multiplied and and spread throughout the land of Egypt, and the increased number of flies carried disease, often identified as anthrax, to the land and animals and eventually humans. You can see how that's kind of building. And, and what you get this idea is this is not just natural. This is more than natural because it's of what we often say is biblical proportions. This is way beyond. And, and it's, here's the thing that makes it where you see the hand of God is just how pervasive it is and the timing. In fact, the timing is noted in there when it says seven days. And, and as Bruce said so well, he, you know, it's only said there as a time thing. Seven was an important number. It meant the time of completeness for one thing to transfer to the next thing. But what's amazing is that, that Moses would know when to exactly do it and strike the ground and it would happen. And when Moses would strike the ground, it would stop. So here's another new element in the story. Because of that, the magicians are just baffled. Exodus 8.18. All the dust throughout the land of Egypt became gnats. But when the magicians tried to produce the gnats by their secret arts or the mosquitoes or sandflies or lice, they could not. They just couldn't pull this trick off. They could do the staff snake trick. They were able to do the water algae blood color trick. They were able to do the frog trick. But have you ever tried to gather a cloud of mosquitoes? Have you, have you ever tried to, you know, like these are mosquitoes and they're everywhere. And, and now these magicians have to do it. One, one contemporary magician stated that trying to do a trick with insects that small is virtually impossible. They gave it a shot. And they give up and they say, this is the finger of God. You can almost see them throwing up their arms in the air and go, wow, that's really good. In fact, that's too good that this, this, this isn't human magic, Pharaoh. This is God. And this isn't for them a confession of faith. It's an admission of their limitation. So make sure that's clear. But there is this aspect. Every person, every person, whether you have the spirit of God or not, can see those this is moments of God 
He gives you opportunity because of the way he's created you and the spirit of God is working in your heart. You may not have ever given yourself or opened your heart to the Lord Jesus Christ. I mean, a person from the outside, you go, how could they? Because God's spirit works even in their hearts to bring conviction. And they were convicted, but they were not in any way committed or converted. His trick is beyond them and any human being. And the Hebrew is really a little bit vague here. It's not even that this is the finger of God. They, they basically are almost saying this is a finger of a God. So pay attention, Pharaoh. Think again. Do a little more reflection this time. Now, the finger of God throughout the Bible is very interesting. It actually points to God's divine power. You get the pun? It points to God, the finger of God. That was a stupid pun. Anyway, um, there's evidence because of the finger God is moving, that he's at work. And it's just the finger. It's, it's this, this is a God moment where you kind of kind of go, is this God in it or not? And he gives you evidence and things to see in your heart to respond to it. And, but you start to wonder, this is not the hand of God. It's not the righteous right arm of God, which you find so often in the Psalms. It talks about when he comes in salvation. In, in fact, there's a, a point in, in one of the Gospels where these bring a guy to the top of the roof and they take the roof off and they lower the guy down and Jesus heals him and the people, the Pharisees are so upset because they can't admit that God's at work through these things. They're upset. How can you, uh, a man, forgive him? And Jesus goes, man, healing a person, driving out demons, it only takes a flick of my finger. But forgiving people, loving them to such a degree that their hearts and their will changes that takes not just the arm of God, it takes his whole life on a cross. That's what's really difficult. So here's the finger of God, pointing to the divine power. And Jesus comes and performs miracles. He heals people. He calms chaotic seas. He makes bread for thousands. He delivers people and he takes those who are harassed and demonized. And, and listen to what it says in Luke eleven fourteen through 20. Jesus was driving out a demon that was mute. And when the demon left, the man who had been mute spoke, and the crowd was amazed. But some said, some of them said, by Beelzebul, which is the Lord of the flies. They looked at Beelzebul was the one like around dung where flies would be. This was a, this was the stinky god of the underworld. The prince of demons, he's driving out demons. That's how he's doing this. Others tested him by asking for a sign from heaven. I go, what more do you need? Well, in this case, because God loves Pharaoh and the people of Egypt and all of Israel, and for you and me, he loves us so much that the severe mercy of God comes and will sometimes just continue to increase the sanctions and the pain because he so loves you, he doesn't want you. He does not want you to run into your own consequences of your sin, which may in this life as a believer be painful, but without knowing Jesus, it will be hell. And he wants you to turn. And he wants you to know him. And so he says, Jesus knew their thoughts and said to them, any kingdom divided against itself will be ruined and a house divided against itself will fall. If Satan is divided against himself, how can his kingdom stand? I say this because you claim that I drive out demons by Beelzebul. Now if I drive out demons by Beelzebul, by whom do your followers drive them out? 
So then they will be your judges. But if I drive out demons by the finger of God, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. There must be a sense where you go, this is God. And God is calling out to each and every person to know him and to draw nearer to him. He's calling us as a church to have a passion for him like we've never had before. And Jesus is quite clear. This is the evidence of God at work. Now, if you look at how this plague ends, Exodus 8, 19, but Pharaoh's heart, this gets to be a common refrain, but Pharaoh's heart was hard and he would not listen just as the Lord said. What I think is interesting here is that Pharaoh hardens his heart and chooses not to listen. God said Pharaoh would harden his heart, but it's very clear that Pharaoh is the one, the the verbs, everything, is the one who hardens his heart. God knows what's going to happen. He's told Moses this guy is not, you know, ever come to someone and go, this guy's going to be, this person's going to be a tough cookie. There's that kind of sense going on. Because Pharaoh hardens his own heart. And think about this. It is not for lack of information that Pharaoh hardens his heart. It is not for lack of evidence that Pharaoh hardens his heart. It's not for lack of persuasion that Pharaoh hardens his heart. Even his own magicians, no, they're not converted. They're appealing to him. This isn't some human thing. We can't do it. You've trusted us. We've served you loyally for our life. Think again. Pay attention. This is God. This is God. And you have to ask yourself, what's lacking? What's lacking for Pharaoh? He's got the info, evidence. He's even having his own trusted advisors appeal to him. And there's one thing and and one thing only that lacks. It's the will to trust. Pharaoh's made up his mind. Pharaoh said, man, I am not going to give up being the God king of this realm and of my life. No matter how much this looks like a this is God moment. So I wanted to ask the question as we close, how do you discern the finger of God? When you go through something like this, this this is one of the things that you can look at this plague and and I think the writer wants us to understand is when the finger of God is moving, how do you know? How, How do you develop a heart that responds to the movement of God around you? How do you, how do you develop a heart that even is, is filled with compassion and love and you're looking at a person you're, you're praying for them and you want that person to know the Lord? How do you begin to discern and even say, God, you're moving here? rather than forcing it somewhere where maybe he isn't. These are all important things to to think about. So what are these kind of hearts? Well, the first is discernment requires a willing heart. You have to truly want what God wants. Is it really a matter of more info or more evidence? Are people around you who you trust speaking into your life, is there anyone close enough to you in your life to say to you, This is God. I mean, do you have a willing heart? Willing in the sense of I'm willing to get close to someone. I'm willing to maybe be in a small group. I'm willing to begin to read God's word, which helps me understand and see when God's at work. Are you willing to do 
what's necessary to grow in discernment so that you can be a person that God can use your eyes to see him at work. But you must, you must truly want what God wants because God goes where he's wanted. I remember when I went in 2015, that difficult time in the church, and the consultant came and spoke with me and brought me into a place where uh, he was with Bob Kleinschmidt and myself, and he just, um, he shared things that were really hard for me to hear. And honestly, I I didn't want to hear it. And uh, I knew this would be hard to share. Anyway, I remember at the time going... In my heart, I was just kind of going. I just want to say, but you don't understand. Guess what? He probably didn't. But I realized in that, no matter whether a person understands or not, it doesn't negate the voice of truth. The voice of God is the voice of God, whether through a friend, an enemy, or even a donkey. And are you willing to hear? And God might be speaking to your boss, and if you did a few of these things, this could really improve your... Are you willing to hear? God might say something to an enemy, and 95% of it isn't true, but maybe have you ever gone, God, here, I'm going to leave it here. I'm not going to let it impact my heart, but I'm going to hold it out here and say, God, the next morning maybe, the next morning pray, God... Is there anything of truth in here? Or are you close enough to people where you can say, this was said, and, they, and be really honest with me. You know, don't hold back the 10%. You know, we always do that, don't we? You kind of hold back the 10%. Give me the full 100%. Are you willing to hear? Be really honest with yourself as I ask this. Is it ultimately that you don't, you just don't want what God wants? Like Pharaoh, you've set your mind in a direction that that God can't even turn. And you then begin to have, I have to ask you, how much pain do you need to experience before you do turn? You may be in that situation as your heart's from, far from God, you're going down a path and you know it and, 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 and there's pain and you got to ask yourself, do you still want what you want? And will you ever call out to God How do you know if you're not getting to the point of no return? Even while his own magicians were appealing to him to see this as an act of God, Pharaoh was virtually saying, I don't care about the evidence. No way will I submit my will to your will, God, to your God. I want to be the God king of my life. I want to rule my realm. I want to rule my life. You ever heard of this? I want my time and I want my money because it's mine. is what God wants running counter counter to what you want. Because discernment requires a willing spirit. Discernment requires an observing heart. You have to truly want to see what God sees. You have to become an observer of God at work, where you're working, where you're living, in your family, which I have to say is really difficult to do. You have to begin in the morning and say, God, I want to see What you see as I go through this day, I want to observe with your eyes. It's an intentional thing. Magda Gerber, who in a book called Caring for Infants, she writes this, gives some good insight, I think. Observe more, do less. Is this an easy process? No way. 
In our society, we're trained to do, do, do. And if you don't, you pretend to do, do, do. Because we get a lot of kudos for that, right? You must act as if you're very busy because being busy is virtuous. Not doing anything is considered laziness, and that's not highly appreciated in our culture. Nobody is about being observant. Nobody is about being observant. The more we do, the better we are, the less we really pay attention. To spend some time sitting peacefully in the room while your infant is doing her own thing without wanting to play with her, teach her, or care for her. Isn't that just, I just, that's, I can't do that. So I just, I'll read it again because it just makes me, gives me the way. Anyway, to spend some time with my grandchild sitting peacefully in the room while your infant is doing their own thing without wanting to play with them or teach them or, or even care, just being available to that little child's will makes you much more sensitive to your child's needs, to their tempo, and to their style. They may This way may sound easy, she says, but it's really very difficult. You must develop the skills, the patience, the appropriate attitude. Just being available, observant to God's will in the lives of other people. This is what Jesus did. He observed. He daily was about being available to his Father's will. John 15, 5, 19 says, I tell you the truth, the Son can do nothing by himself. He can only do what he sees his Father doing. So I... I don't want to extend this much more than saying, what does it look like to pay attention? How do you develop a discerning heart? You develop a discerning heart by an observing heart, which means there's some things that you need to do. Have you ever said, Lord Jesus, thank you for the gift of your salvation. Thank you for the gift of your spirit. But I want to be filled with your spirit. I want to walk with your spirit. I want to see this morning with your eyes. Have you ever done that? Ever said, this is what I want. I, I don't want a little bit of your spirit. I want your fear, spirit fully enveloping my life so that I can begin to see and pay attention to where you're working. Because Jesus said, I tell you the truth, the son can do nothing by himself. He can only do what he sees his father doing. Discernment means Developing an an observant heart, and it means this. Discernment requires an obedient heart. And this this is so key to this whole thing. You will see nothing more than your next step. If you fail to obey what God is leading and speaking to you, then don't expect to see much more. Don't expect to move forward. God is patient. He was with Pharaoh. He continued to, to work with him and continued until there was no room for that to happen. Because we walk by faith, but here's the truth. Obedience is what opens the door of God's blessing. Obedience leads to a deeper understanding of God. It's obedience that grows our character, and Jesus is so clear in this. When he performed a miracle, he didn't just expect his his disciples to be wowed. He actually expected them to have greater confidence in him and to entrust more of their life to him in times when they're feeling stress or in times when they're, they're feeling overwhelmed. He, he expected them to go, God, you've got this. God, when you're calling me to step in to a direction, I'm going to do it. I'm going to be obedient to you. 
In Mark 4, 24 through 25, Jesus says to them, Be diligent to understand the meaning behind everything you hear, for as you do... Here's the, here's the, here's the idea here. The discerning heart, discerning heart is an obedient. As you do, more understanding will be given to you. For those who listen with open hearts will receive more revelation, but those who don't listen with open hearts will lose the very little they think they have. You are either moving forward through obedience or you're moving backwards. Every blow was God's severe mercy to Pharaoh, meant to open his heart, yet Every refusal to listen for Pharaoh merely hardened the callous of his heart. And the commands of God are meant to be obeyed, and an obedient heart leads to greater discernment. Um, I wasn't planning to share this, Ron, but I remember we met, I think it was like five years ago, and you were so excited, and you shared with me this idea that God gave you, and you, you know, I, I said, let's stay in touch. We would love to do something with you as a church if God does this. And so we met a few years later, and it still wasn't happening, but your heart was still as passionate, and you kept looking for what God wanted to do, and I, you kept taking steps of obedience into this vision, this dream that, that, that you could have easily just given up. And then at one point, God moved in such a way that he had all these different pieces in place, which the story's too long to tell. And all of a sudden it happened, and we came in August this last year, and God has launched something that is unique. He's allowed us to step into that, to serve our community. And I'm so grateful that you were obedient. And I'm so grateful that we're being obedient in that. And I say that because God is speaking to some of you, and he's calling you to move into a situation. And you have fear. You have all this stuff. God has done the miracles. You've read them. But he's saying, I need you to take this step of faith. You need to be obedient. You need to move forward. Because when you move forward, I can open up more revelation. I can open up more ways for you. He is calling us as a church to do this as a whole. God did an incredible thing in January. We came together. We read the Bible. We prayed and fasted. And, and God moved us. I believe he opened the door for the Spirit of God to work in more ways. But he wants to do do more. And he can't do it just corporately. He has to do it in your heart individually. And so I really want you to just to pray as we go into this time where we, we I'm going to ask the worship team to come forward as we, we just worship God. Afterwards, I'm going to ask some of you to come forward. And it may be that God is dealing with an area where you're saying, God, I've, I've been gone the wrong way and you have been talking to me and this has these have been like sanctions i feel and i'm here to repent i'm here to think again or it may be a step of obedience and you're just saying i need someone to pray for me i need for them to breathe faith into me god we're gonna you have people up here and i believe god will speak through these people as they pray and if you would like to do this after the song i want you to do it but i don't want you to do it out of emotion i want you to come forward if god is calling you in any way and it and it's going to be scary oh everyone's looking at me would you guys promise not to look if people come forward? Just kidding. Um, but we really want to do that. We really feel led that this is time for us to pray and to start taking steps of faith.